0: Please turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. We continue in our series through the Ten Commandments, Ten Words, and the Law of God. Today we will address the second word, do not worship idols. Our key words for our worshipers in training are idol, worship, and image. In 1878, China suffered one of its worst ever famines. The London Times reported that 70 million people were dying of starvation. And that was more than the combined population of Great Britain and America at that time. A Confucian scholar, Hsi Shengmo, was terrified as a boy growing up of the faces that he remembers from the idols that he saw in his village. And he had nightmares as their twisted features stared at him in his dreams as he slept. And now with this terrible famine in the land, with the sun burning down relentlessly on the people, no moisture, no growth, No clouds in the sky. With the ground scorched like a desert and people dying by the hundreds of thousands. The men of Hasee's village turned to these very idols for help. So at first they thought they needed to revere the idols, to feast with the idols. This was a desperate attempt to put the idols in a better mood. So the villagers arranged theater shows so that the idols would enjoy themselves. But still the rain did not come. Finally, the the people took their idols out of the temple and sat them in the blistering sun until their paint began to peel off so that they might know what it felt like to the villagers to be in the sun without a drop of rain. And yet still, no rain. They found eventually that no amount of praising, no amount of torturing, no amount of feeding or worshiping the idols brought about rain in the land. It's a sad story. It's a story that reminds us of Elijah's battle with the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18:20 20 through 29. We read, Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bowls be given to us, and let them choose one bowl for themselves, and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the outer bowl and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many. And call upon the name of your God and put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, And they prepared it, and they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, worship us, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey. Or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. How very sad. But you know, this is the sad history of the human race. A history we are all a part of. A history we have not escaped. It's a history of idolatry. Every people group of every generation has manufactured various idols of different shapes and different kinds. And we are not immune to this great defilement of God's law. Let's read together in Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." Now, according to the Reformed tradition, this is the second commandment of God. You may know that the Roman Catholics and Lutherans keep verses 4 through 6 tied to the first commandment and see all uh, uh, from verse 1 through uh, 6 to be the first commandment of God and they get their ninth and 10th commandment by splitting the 10th commandment into two. But we believe there's a very distinct difference between the first and second commandments, that God has intended for them to be two very separate commandments. Remember from last week, the first commandment establishes the kind of God that we worship. He is one and alone. There is no other God. There never has been, nor can there ever be another God. He is not one amongst other gods, nor is he even the first among all the other gods. It is that he alone is God and there is no other. So we must reject every false god in order to worship the one true and living God who alone is our Lord and our Savior. That is the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Now the second commandment has to do with worshiping the right God in the right way. We may not worship Him in the form of any man-made idol. Whereas the first First commandment commandment forbids us to worship false gods, the second commandment forbids us to worship the true God falsely. How we worship matters nearly as much to God as whom we worship. We may not worship him any way that we like, but only the way that God himself has commanded. In the words of our own Baptist catechism, the second commandment forbids the worshiping of God by images or any other way not appointed in his word. So this commandment of God is one of the reasons from Scripture that we hold to what we call the regulative principle of worship. We only do in our worship corporately what God has commanded in His Word. Nothing more and nothing less. Now, we have to understand the context of by which this law comes to the people of God. During the time when Moses received the ten words of God at Mount Sinai, the surrounding nations had no lack of idols. Each of the plagues from God in Egypt were a response to the various gods of the Egyptian people. But chief among the idols throughout the land were El, Baal, and Dagon. They also had various goddesses Asherah, Astarte, and Enoth, the goddess of sex and violence. Baal was in the form of a bull. We probably read about Baal more than the other idols of the time. Asherah was a carved pole. Every god was represented in physical form, and this was the idol of the people. The ancient world could not believe in a God if it could not see it. And that was part of what was so unique about the Israelites. Their God was invisible. The nations looked in vain for the God of Israel. Every pagan city had its gods, had its temples, sacrifices, priests, priestesses, called prostitutes. It's possible that some of them even employed adult sacrifices. And many of them we know employed the practice of the grotesque child sacrifice associated with the God of Moloch. It's not difficult to imagine the kind of lifestyle of a people who worshipped gods like this. And so God began His ten words by ordering the people, You shall have no other gods before Me. Because God knew that we would either worship God or we would worship gods. And therefore it is important that we need to establish who God truly is. And then God added to the first commandment, the second commandment, because he knew that our next step would be to say, well, we can't understand this God. He's too big. He's too, he's too vast. So we're going to reduce him to a size that we can understand. There's a good illustration of the Scriptures that helps us to differentiate between the first and second commandments. It comes from the life of King Jehu. In 2 Kings chapters 9 and 10, Jehu is praised for eliminating Baal worship from Israel when he, he did this by putting the wicked Jezebel to death by destroying the ministers of Baal. The account of Jehu's victory ends with the commendation. In Second Kings 10.28 it says, Thus Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. So far, so good. First commandment accomplished. Jehu refused to worship other gods. But unfortunately, the story goes on. The very next verse tells us Jehu did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat which he made Israel to sin. That is, the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. So I have to ask the question of the text. If Jehu got rid of Baal worship, then what were these sacred cows still doing in Israel? Well, the answer is that although Jehu enforced the first commandment, he allowed his people to break the second The golden calves did not represent other gods. They were intended to represent the God of Israel himself. This is exactly what the second commandment opposes. Namely, worshiping God with an idol. So the first commandment forbids the worship of false gods. The second commandment forbids false worship. Now there's four specific parts to the specific uh, to the second commandment. So we're going to look at each one of them. First, we have to ask the question of each of the commandments: What is forbidden? What is the rule? Let's look again at verse four: You shall not make for yourself a carved image. Very simple. No carved or graven image, no idol. The English translations all differ a tiny bit. But they all mean the same thing. We may not worship God in the form of any man-made idol. To the Israelites, they understood an idol to be that which was crafted by the hands of man with a tool. It was either carved out of wood. Chiseled in stone, engraved in metal. Whatever it was, it was cut and shaped by human hands. And so the God, the idols that God is referring to in the Second Commandment are man made representations of divine beings. Now, we have to notice it's very important to understand that God is not forbidding the use of tools to fashion art or to do woodwork, or to do anything of that nature. He's very specific in this commandment. He's commanding us to not make these things to be items that are for worship. Now this is clarified in the second part of the rule. Look at verse 5. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. God also clarifies with a list the kinds of idols that are forbidden. The second part of verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. In other words, there is nothing in creation that God allows to be used to represent Him in the physical form. Nothing in heaven, nothing on the earth, nothing under the earth. And this pretty much covers it, right? (laughs) The Israelites were not allowed to represent God in the form of anything in all of creation. Remember the context. It's very important as we Consider these laws. We have to remember what is being responded to. Remember, we saw in the prologue that God reminds them they have come out of Egypt. He has brought them out of Egypt. The Egyptians worshipped many gods, and nearly all of them were in the forms of animals. But the God of Israel refused to be represented by anything. This is clear in God's name. Yahweh, I am who I am. So what's the implication there? I need no representation. I need no image. I am God and there is no other. Therefore, I am the one to be worshipped and none else. You know, it's interesting as you read through the Scriptures how often this issue of idolatry comes up. You see it time and time and time again, particularly as you read through the Old Testament. Perhaps most striking of all is Isaiah's description of what makes idolatry as foolish as it truly is and why the one true God will have none of it. If you like, look with me in Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah 44, beginning in verse 9. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witness neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble, let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and breaks bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns on the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and he is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god. His idol. And falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me for you are my god. They know not. Nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge of discernment to say, Half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Isaiah so vividly points out the foolishness of the worship of idols. A carpenter cuts down a tree and he makes a plank of wood and he cuts it in half and one half he burns in the fire to keep himself warm and to cook his bread and the other half he fashions into an idol and falls down and worships it. What a wise man to be able to determine which half should be burned and which half should be worshipped. What foolishness! What foolishness! And so we see why it is so vitally important that we understand the second commandment of God. Worshipping through image and idol is forbidden in the law of God. Make no image of Him and do not bow down to any that are created. God needs no representation from the creative hands of man. After all, we were the ones created by Him. God has effectively revealed Himself by His own creative hand. We read in Psalm nineteen one, The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need us to reveal who He is by fashioning idols and images. He has done so quite effectively on His own. So the rule is very simple, to make no carved or graven images or idols. Secondly, what, why has God commanded this? What is the reason? Now, there are many good reasons for this command, but the, the one that God specifically states is His love. You shall not make for yourself a carved image for the Lord your God. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. God forbids idolatry because of his jealousy. Now, we have to understand what he means by this word jealous, it is demanding exclusive service. It's about God's zeal, about God's passionate love. So we're not talking about envy, which is the desire to get something that does not belong to you. But when something belongs to you, it is sometimes appropriate that it be protected at all costs. The, The jealousy of God is a guarding of His rightful possession. A good example of this would be a husband-wife relationship. No man who truly loves his wife can even stand the thought of his wife in the arms of another man. It makes him rightly jealous. Likewise, God rightly loves himself, as the greatest and chiefest being and is rightly jealous when His creation bows down in worship to anything or anyone other than Himself. One commentator said, A God who is not jealous would be contemptible as a husband who doesn't care whether or not his wife was faithful to him. Part of our problem with this profound covenantal reality is that we have come to regard religion like everything else as a matter of consumer choice. We represent monopolies, but the unique and incomparable only living God makes necessarily exclusive claims and has the right to a monopoly on our love. Jealousy is God's love protecting itself. What God so jealously protects in the second commandment is the honor of His love. And God not only loves us, He also wants us to love Him in return. Among other things, that means worshiping Him in a way that is worthy of His honor. God has the right to tell us how He wants to be worshiped. And He has commanded us not to spurn His love by turning Him into an idol, by reducing Him to the size of something we can hold in our hands or look at on the wall. Third, what if man fails to submit to this law? What is the warning that God gives in this commandment? Not all the commandments have warnings tied to them, but this one does. God's jealousy is the explanation as to why the second commandment ends with a warning. And it also ends with a promise. Look at the second part of verse five. I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. God shows His zeal to be glorified in our worship by cursing those who break the second commandment and blessing those who keep it. The warning here is that children will be punished for the sins of their fathers. The word translated iniquity refers to something that is is twisted, something that is contorted. It suggests that idolatry is something of a perversion. It is a turning against God. It may seem very religious that we would have images and icons and idols. But God forbids the very things that seem to be so enticing to our hearts. That desire something beyond how God has chosen to reveal himself to us. How he has commanded us to worship him. I draw, idolatry is actually a way of showing a hatred of God. Notice, he says, for those who hate me. So it's not surprising that God threatens to punish those who do such hateful things toward their Creator. Now, many people want to question whether or not the punishment of God here is even just. How can God judge children for the sins of their fathers? Well, this causes a lot of confusion, especially because in Ezekiel 18 and Second Chronicles 25, God promises that men and women will be punished for their own sin and not for the sins of their fathers. So what exactly does he mean? There's no contradiction here. It's, it's very easy to understand that there's no doubt that children suffer greatly for the sins of their parents not by some arbitrary decree of a vengeful God, but by the very simple law of cause and effect. Sadly and unavoidably, the punishment that falls on the parents often afflicts their children as well. It's a fundamental law of humanity that we never sin to ourselves alone. We show our children how to live. And by passing on our idols, we demonstrate our priorities. All our sins affect others, but probably our children most of all. And we have to pause there and think, while this is such a great reality, thanks be to God that Christ can and does break the stronghold of idolatry that is passed on to our children. The warning of verse 5 is only a general statement, but it is a terrible warning. That superstition, idolatry, false religion, or no religion of the parents will be indelibly marked on their children so that only the power of God in Christ Jesus can erase it. You know, the most serious warning Jesus ever gave was in connection with the next generation. Addressing those responsible for the welfare of children, and with the visual aid of a little child standing beside him, Christ warned that anyone who caused a child to stumble into the sins of its guardians, presumably whether parents or the society they were a part of, that they would be better to be weighted down with a millstone around their neck and drowned in the sea. This was a radical and offensive challenge to cut out everything and anything that hinders the true spiritual and moral development of a child. It's what is meant in Exodus 20 and verse 5 by the punishment continuing into further generations. Generations. We are reaping, parents, we are reaping in our children today the fruit of our idolatry yesterday. And if that doesn't drive you to your knees to pray for your children, I don't know what will. Because I know how weak my heart is and how incredibly prone to idolatry I am. We need to all be in prayer. God, help my children to not be ensnared by the sins of my life. Rescue my children from me. Rescue them unto you. The warning behind the law of God is that there will be future generations who suffer From our idolatries. But we are so thankful to God for the blood of Christ. That frees us from the ensnaring grips of idolatry. Fourthly, what if man obeys God's law? What is the promise? We see this in verse 6. Showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. God promises to show mercy to those who love Him and keep His commandments. Not to serve idols. Notice the promise is much more powerful than the warning. And that's just like God, isn't it? The blessing lasts not just for three or four generations, but for a thousand generations. In other words, the blessing will last forever. This was God's promise going all the way back to Abraham. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you. God's warning in the second commandment may seem a bit discouraging to someone who comes from a family that does not honor God, but God's blessing triumphs over God's curse. God often intervenes in the history of a family to turn their hatred into love and worship. He does what he did for Abraham. He calls a family to leave its idols and to follow him. And when God does that, he establishes a lasting legacy. His grace rests on a family from one generation to the next. This is not some kind of automatic guarantee because children are free to turn away from the God of their parents. But so often we see that God is pleased to transform the hearts of our children to show His glory. And it's when, although imperfectly, we have sought to teach them the truth of God's Word, His law, His gospel, His attributes, His character, when we've sought to show them the truth of God's love. Now, it seems obvious, but there are some very serious implications in the second commandment for parents. And this is one area of application that will hopefully be helpful to us as we Think more about the second commandment and seek to apply it in our families, in our personal lives. Uh, One example of the second commandment playing out in our lives is what we do with those things that are huge idols in the American dream lifestyle. The idol of retirement and leisure for 20 or 30 years before we die. The idol of sports and hobbies. In our culture, while we don't see carved images, idolatry is very much alive and well. We talked briefly about this last week. To allow a sport or a hobby to take the place of the worship of God is idolatry. It is these very things that Christians are so prone to engage in while dismissing the corporate worship of God on the Lord's Day. And parents, this is where we need to be very, very careful with what we are showing our children about worship. We'll revisit this when we get to the fourth commandment, but it very much relates to the second When we dismiss the corporate worship of God on the Lord's Day to bring our children to their sporting events, or when our Saturday activities in the evening leave the entire family so tired that they're unable to have hearts prepared for worship, we're teaching our children that perhaps there are certain things that gain precedence over the worship of God. Now certainly we don't, intend to convey that message. But if we miss enough worship gatherings to help our team win the tournament, we don't have to say much of anything. We are clearly presenting a picture of what we are willing to give up that we might gain something else in its place. We're cultivating hearts prone to idolatry in our children when anything gains prominence over the worship of God. Idolatry in our culture takes on many different forms. This is just one example. For some, it's sexual gratification. For others, it's money and power. For others, it's strongholds of addiction, drugs, alcohol. We all have a million things in our lives that we long for and can very easily make into idols. And how we worship God has a lot to do with identifying those idols in our lives. For example, do you prepare your heart for worship? Or do you simply show up expecting something to happen? Men, do do you pray for the hearts of your wife and children to be prepared for worship? Are you quietly and privately worshiping the Lord every day? Is your family engaged in family worship and having spiritual conversations that provoke God-focused thoughts and convictions? If we're not doing these things, what are we filling our time with instead? Facebook? Sports center? Reality TV shows? Fashion magazines? Going out on the town? Now, remember I said last week We identify that the danger of idols is that most of the time they're not in and of themselves bad things. Sometimes they're very good things, like a certain ministry or a means to provide for your family. But when good things become God things, they're very bad things. For many of us, Baal worship is actually Baal worship. Some are white with dimples, others are brown and they bounce. I've even heard of a ball that's almond-shaped and it's made out of pigskin. We live in a culture that is obsessed with entertainment. For the life of me, I cannot to this day understand why tabloids are still in business. It's only proof that people really do care about who's married to whom this week and what they wore to the club and how many pounds they've gained in the last six months. The late Neil Postman was a non-Christian sociologist that looked at our American culture and he nailed it with his wonderful book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. He wrote it over 20 years ago and what he has to say is only more true today. He argued that our politics and our religion, and our news, and our athletics, and our education, and our commerce, they've all been brought together and, tr- and been transformed into these pleasant additions to show business without much protest or even much notice. The result is that we are a people on the verge of amusing ourselves to death with the visual. Postman was a non-believer, but he even cited the second commandment in his book. He wrote this, In studying the Bible as a young man, I found intimations of the idea that forms of media favor particular kinds of content and therefore are capable of taking command of a culture. I speak specifically of the Decalogue, the second commandment of which prohibits the Israelites from making concrete images of anything. The God of the Jews was to exist in the word and through the word, an unprecedented conception requiring the highest order of abstract thinking. Iconography thus became blasphemy so that a new kind of God could enter a culture. People like ourselves who are in the process of converting their word center into an image center might profit by reflecting on this mosaic injunction. In other words, Postman draws this very keen observation from the second commandment. Eventually, the visual displaces the verbal. Once we see, we will eventually no longer want to hear. But the problem being, of course, that God has revealed Himself through the Word. And faith comes not by seeing but by hearing. The image always wants to distract us from the hearing of the Word. In a very visual age, we need to be more and more careful not to look at the image, but to listen to the Word. We cannot ever let things of visual beauty become objects of our worship because they lie. They lie because they cannot represent the infinite beauty of God. Nothing in this earth that can be combined and put together and fashioned will ever come close to representing the beauty of God. We also make an idol whenever we turn God into something that we can manipulate. This was the whole point of pagan idolatry. The Egyptians did not think that The gods actually lived in their idols, but they did think that idols gave them a kind of spiritual contact that would enable them to control their gods. So much contemporary spirituality tries to do the very same thing. People are always looking for a more user-friendly God. A God who can be adapted to suit their purposes. The idea is, if I do this, then God will do that. So the end result is putting God into our debt as if he owes us something because of our works or our service unto him. If I fulfill my vow, then God will make me rich. If I say the right prayer every day, I will have the key to unlocking God's blessings. If I follow the right parenting method, then my kids will grow up to be godly. As long as we approach God the right way, we will get what we want. That's how many of us think, isn't it? I know we won't admit it, but we do. We dare not speak it out loud. We dare not tell God what we're thinking. But we think it. I prayed, I gave, I planned, I worked hard, I did everything I was supposed to do. So now my plans must come to fruition. Really? Why? Because we think we are able to manipulate God. But God cannot and will not be manipulated. When he commands us not to make idols, he is saying that he will not be captured and contained and assigned or managed by anyone or anything for any purpose. God wants us to trust him and obey him, not use him. And We also make an idol whenever we choose to worship God for some of his attributes, but not others. For example, liberalism wants a God of love without justice, so they simply deny foundational Christian doctrines like the wrath of God or the substitutionary atonement of Christ. It's it's very popular even to hear many who claim to be evangelicals downplaying these very realities. The feminist movement seeks to deny the fatherhood of God, they prefer a God made more in the image of woman. Open theists deny the foreknowledge of God. They say God knows something about the future, but since he cannot know what humans will decide to do, he does not know everything. In effect, they're advocating a God who thinks more the way that they do. A God who is trying to figure things out as he goes along as we are. This is all idolatry. If you ever hear the words from someone, I like to think of God as whatever. usually about to remake God in their own image. We are tempted to worship God the way we want him to be, rather than who he actually is. We tend to emphasize the things about God that we like and minimize the rest. We place a higher priority on knowing the Bible than on loving God himself. We think that God is more concerned with private morality than with social justice. And since we are all legalists at heart, we are motivated more by a sense of duty than by a deep gratitude for the grace of God. And when we do all of this, we end up with a deity without love, without compassion, and without grace. How can we worship God the right way? What can save us from our own private idolatries? The answer is very simple. Rather than remaking God in our image, we need to be remade into His image. And God does that by bringing us into a personal saving relationship with His Son, Jesus Christ. Here's a profound mystery. When God first created the world, he made men and women in his image. We were made to be like God, to reflect his glory. And this is another reason why God tells us not to make images. He already has an image. We are created according to God's image. John Calvin wrote, God cannot be represented by a picture or a sculpture since he has intended his likeness to appear in us. Christopher Wright wrote, the only legitimate image of God is the image of God created in his own likeness. The living, thinking, working, speaking, breathing, relating human being. Not even a statue will do, but only the human being. We're not allowed to make God's image, but only to be God's image. But our ability to do so was so badly damaged by our fall into sin. God made man perfectly in the garden, in His image. Bearers of His image, man and woman. And then at the fall, the image of God is defaced. It's like putting graffiti on a mirror. In our fallen, sinful condition, we're no longer able to reflect God's glory as He created us to perfectly. But thanks be to God that He has sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to repair His image in us and to redirect and reorient our hearts away from idols and onto Himself. Because Jesus is the true image. Colossians 1.15 says the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3 says the exact imprint of his nature. This is why Jesus could say that anyone who sees him has seen the Father. He is the point of contact. In order to come to God in true worship, we don't need to make some kind of idol. All we need to do is come to Him through Jesus Christ. And when we come to Christ, then God lives in us by His Holy Spirit and is conforming us and molding us more and more and more into the image that He created us to bear. He works in us to repair His image so that we can live for His glory. We need Christ to repair us. We need Christ to crush our idols in our lives. Because we're not going to repair them ourselves. We're not, going to, we're, not, we're not going to crush our own idols. And if we're trying, we will fail. We need Christ. We need the work of Christ to be applied to us. He who is the perfect image. He who is worthy of our worship. He who is our Lord and Savior. Let's pray together. We are so very thankful for your word, which transforms us, which conforms us, which molds us to be more and more into that which you have created man to be. A representation of who you are, of your character, of your attributes. And Lord, we do so so very imperfectly because of the fall and because we are all prone to sin. We do not accurately come near the representation of who you are and the worship of which you are worthy. And yet, Lord, you have seen fit by your grace. To send Jesus on our behalf to live perfectly. To bear the penalty that was ours. And to fill us with the Holy Spirit. That we would be molded and transformed. That we can look forward to that great day of Christ's return. When all things are made new. And we are restored to that great state of perfection. Where we accurately and fully display the image of God that we were intended to from the very beginning. Lord, I pray that you help each of us to search out the things in our lives that have ensnared us, those things that are idolatry. And Lord, if necessary, to make hard decisions, to rid ourselves of idolatries, to cast aside those things that keep us from true worship, To cast aside those things that gain our greatest affections. To cast aside those things that keep us from worshiping you rightly. Those things that we have molded to be items of worship and affection. Help us, Lord, to be vigilant. To be faithful to worship you rightly. And to cast away that which distracts us from you. Thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for the challenge. Thank you for the warning. Thank you for the promise that is ours because of Christ Jesus, our Lord. We praise you. We thank you. In the name of Jesus. Amen.